You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Well, hey, we're starting this new series, and we're really uh, talking about identity. And the reality is, is that if you were going to introduce yourself to someone uh, and really get to know someone, there's probably questions that you would ask them, or there's uh, things that you would reveal about yourself uh, to let people know who you are. So you might share things about uh, where you live, where you work, where you come from. Uh, the, you know, you, you might talk about some of your hobbies or what your family's like, and, uh, and you might just kind of share your story a little bit. But the big question would be is, who are you and who am I? And how do we really define that? Like, where do, we, where do we draw information about our identity? And the reason that I think identity is so important because who we think we are will ultimately determine how we approach life. It'll ultimately determine what we do. And what can happen is, is that if we gain our identity from people if we gain our identity from the world, if we gain our identity from our success or our failures in the workplace, uh, if we get our identity from weird places or places that uh, don't have a true sense of who we really are, what can happen is we can uh, have a little identity theft in our lives where uh, all of a sudden our identity is stolen from us and we begin to think that we are people that, are, we, that we're really never meant to be. And so what we're going to do over the next couple weeks is study through the book of Ephesians and really ask the question, who does God say we are in Christ? And this morning what happens is we open up to Ephesians chapter 1 is Paul begins Ephesians with the longest, most robust, the most dense sentence in all of Scripture, and it's about our identity in Christ. In fact, for all you English majors, if you begin to read that, you'll see that there's 202 words in one sentence with no punctuation. Like in the Greek, it just keeps going and going and going and going and going until he puts a period at the end of it. In fact, in just the small amount of verses, in 14 verses, Paul says the name of Jesus 14 times. If you're not a math major like me, that's once a verse. He says, in Christ, 11 times in 14 verses. And what I would suggest to you is that as we open up our Bibles for this series, as we're going through Ephesians, anytime you see that phrase, in Christ, I would highlight it, circle it, underline it, however you take notes, but it's really significant. Because what Paul's going to reveal to us is the fact that our identity, who we are, should be found in Christ. In fact, if our identity is found in anything else, it's not secure. It can change. It can be redefined over and over again. But if we really discover who we are in Christ, our identity is secure. Our identity is unchanging. It means that our identity isn't defined by our success or our failure. It means our identity isn't defined by what people think about us. It's identified by what God thinks about us. And what's interesting is Paul is writing back to the church in Ephesus. Here's his big idea. 
The big idea in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is he's writing to his brothers and sisters at the church of Ephesus that he started in Acts chapter 19, and here's, there, here's the starting point. Hey, the big idea is you are blessed in Christ Jesus. Like That's his opening statement of the letter. Hey, it's me, Paul, an apostle chosen by God. Here's the big idea. Brothers and sisters, you're blessed. In fact, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing that you could possibly have in Christ. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. Paul is writing this letter from prison. Like, if I write you a letter from prison, I'm not starting with how blessed I am. Right? If, I, if I'm taking a journal of my life in prison, it's day one, terrible. Day two, still terrible. Day three, terrible. Day four, still terrible. But Paul writes it completely different. He writes with brothers and sisters, we're blessed. It's, it's not that my circumstances define my blessing. It's not that my situation defines my blessing. It's not what I've done that defines my blessing. It's not what people think about me which defines my blessing. So it's greater than that. Because my blessing is defined by the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. So Paul can be chained up in a prison cell and he's writing to the church that he loves and he goes, we are blessed in Christ. In fact, it's really a call to worship. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's going, listen, bless God, the Father of Jesus. Why? Because he's blessed us in Christ. Blessed be the God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now this is really important for us. Because when we think about blessing, we usually think about stuff. In fact, when we pray about blessing, we usually pray about stuff. So we pray prayers like, God, give me a car that runs and a spouse that doesn't. That would be blessed. Right? Give me a job that pays and has benefits. Hey, God, you know the size of my bank account. Blessing would be increasing the amount of money in my bank account. Hey, God, would you give me success in the workplace? Uh, among my peers, would I have your favor so that I could be promoted? God, give me what I want, what I desire, what I wish I had, but I currently don't have. That's usually how we think about blessing. And sometimes, God gives us those types of blessings. Sometimes God gives us those things. But that is not what Paul is talking about. Paul isn't talking about a car or a spouse or finances or a better job or a, a more secure 401k. He's not thinking about any of that. In fact, Paul gives us some information about the blessings that he's talking about because he defines it this way. He says, first of all, these blessings are in Christ which means the only way to receive these blessings is through a personal saving relationship with Jesus. 
Paul goes, the blessings that I'm referring to aren't from the world. They're not necessarily from the workplace. He said, the, the blessings I'm talking about come solely from the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of Jesus. And he says, not only are they in Christ, he says they're in the heavenly places, which means that they're secure, means they're stored up in a place where the moth can't destroy, where rust can't deteriorate. It means that because the blessings are in the heavenly places, they can be enjoyed in this life, but they can also be enjoyed for all of eternity. You see, Paul has a very, a very big picture of blessing. Because what he says is when we think about blessing, we, we think about temporal, earthly things. And so it's okay to go, hey God, would you give me a better job so I could make more money to buy a better house so I could have you know, nice stuff and get a car. But here's, I think, what Paul is saying to us. All of that will one day go in the garbage dump. Or one day you will die, and you know what? You won't be able to enjoy the big house, the big bank account, the car. That'll end. That's temporary. Paul says, take it from a guy who's sitting in prison. There's blessings that last forever, and that's what I'm after. I'm after the blessings that will last in this life and the blessings that last for an eternity. And Paul begins to reveal to us some of the ways we're blessed. And what can happen if we're not careful is we can be around the Bible so much. But we can be around the Scripture. We can be around other Christians. We can do the church thing so long that what happens is, is we can, we can actually kind of become hardened to the things that should soften our hearts. We can begin to take for granted the things that we should be rejoicing and celebrating and praising God for on a daily basis. That there's things that we should be screaming at the top of our heads like our favorite football team scored a touchdown, but the reality is, is now we just kind of give God a golf clap. And Paul is pulling us back. He's giving us a new mindset, going, listen, when you think about blessing, I, listen, you can get a new car, but you know what's better than a car? God is better than a car. You can get a better bank account, but God's better. You can get a bigger house, but God is better. You can work up the ladder at the job, but God is better. And he's like, don't forget the greatest blessing that God has given us is that God has given us God. That you can have a relationship with God. That the greatest gift I can give someone is myself. And Paul says, listen, what happens is, is like when the bride and the groom get married at a wedding, if you've ever been to a wedding, you bring gifts to a wedding. But if you go to a wedding, the bride and the groom don't bring gifts to their wedding. And the reason the bride and the groom don't bring gifts to their wedding is because their gift is one another to each other. That the gift is the husband stands before his wife and he says, I am yours forever. And sickness and health till death do us part. And the woman stands before her husband and says, and I give myself to you. We are now one. Paul says in the same way God has given us God. That you and I can have a personal, significant relationship 
with the God who is the creator of all things, the holy, 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 alpha and omega, the Lord God Almighty. We can have a relationship with him. God has given us God. Which means our blessing isn't tied to our situation. It means our blessing isn't tied to our circumstance. Our blessing isn't even tied to how we feel at the moment. Your blessing isn't tied to who you think you are. It's not tied to what you've done, what you've been through, what you're about to go through. What people think about you doesn't define your blessing. Your blessing is directly tied to and directly defined by the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. And Paul then spends time giving us ways that we have been blessed. Ways that we have been blessed, ways that we will continually be blessed, blessings that will last all through eternity. And he begins to list these for us so that we would see them, so that we would put our faith in them, and so that we would celebrate them. So that we would actually see these so clearly and have our faith so entrenched in them that they would become part of our identity as Christ followers. That you could wake up in the morning on the worst day of your life and go, you know what, life is terrible, there is hurt, there is heartache, but in Christ, I am blessed. At work they gave me the pink slip, but in Christ I'm blessed. The car that used to be the blessing but now broke down, that's terrible. But in Christ, I'm blessed. The doctor delivered terrible news, but in Christ, I'm blessed. The roof is leaking again, but in Christ, I am blessed. And Paul then begins to reveal to us how God has blessed us through Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, the very next thing he tells us is that one of the ways we've been blessed by God the Father through Jesus Christ is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He goes, listen, one of the ways you're blessed is that God has made you holy and blameless through Jesus. And it is a blessing because your life is not defined by you being holy and or blameless. See, the big question here would be is, who are you trying to get the applause of in your life? And the things you do, the things you say, the ways you behave, the ways you achieve, whose applause are you seeking? Whose applause are you living for? And Paul, as he sits in prison, says, listen, his life is about the applause of one single audience, and it's God. And he asks us the question, whose audience or whose applause are you seeking from what audience? Because according to the scripture, every single one of us, every single one of us one day will stand before God and give an account for our life. 
And see, on that day, it won't matter what people think about you. What will matter is what God thinks about you. And so you could stand before God and say, yeah, but God, I I achieved and I did and people liked me and I had friends and you should have seen my Twitter account and my Facebook following and people in my community loved me. They thought I was a, a great guy. What will God say about you? And see, what matters most is in that moment what God says about you because what he determines about you will last for eternity. Paul says, you want to know how you're blessed in Christ? So one of the ways that you've been blessed in Christ is that Jesus, who is holy, would go to the cross in your place because you are not holy. And on the cross, he would die for your sins. And there would be this great exchange on the cross that he would take our condemnation and we would get salvation. That in that moment, we would get his righteousness, but he would take our unrighteousness. That on that moment, he would become like us, but we would become like him. That in Christ, you would become holy with a holiness that you do not deserve. And it means that when you stand before God, it means that the way God sees you would be the same way that he sees you. His son, Jesus. And Paul says, you are incredibly blessed. Because in Christ you have been made holy and blameless. That in Christ you have been given a holiness that does not belong to you, that cannot be earned by you. And practically what it means, it's really significant, practically it means that you don't have to be perfect Christ is your perfection. It means that you don't have to try to live a perfect life. It means that Christ has already lived a perfect life for you in your place. But it also means, it also means that you're able to live a holy life. It means because Christ has made you holy, he's also enabled you to pursue holiness. It means that you don't have to be defined by sin. It, doesn't, it means you don't have to be overtaken by temptation. That you have been blessed with the holiness of God. That when you stand before him one day, you would be pronounced holy and blameless, accepted. Paul says, I want you to see how blessed you are. In fact, not only are you holy and blameless, but he gives us another blessing, and he says, you've been chosen by God. Now, I I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but probably most of us have, that it probably happens around middle school, and it happens around recess when you go out to play some sort of game, and everybody lines up, and then they choose teams, right? You get two captains, and they choose teams, and your greatest fear is that you'll be picked last, and you see people in front of you getting picked, and as one person gets picked, you're like, hey, they, they took him or her in front of me? And what Paul says is, see, God doesn't pick sides like that. You're chosen. 
That one of the ways you're blessed is no matter what's going on in your life, no matter your circumstance, no matter your feeling, the reality is that if you know Jesus, if you've been saved by him, then God has chosen you. Even though you didn't deserve it, he chose you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, we aren't going to resolve this tension this morning, but Paul begins to use some words that people have debated for hundreds of years. We will not end that debate this morning. In fact, we aren't even going to enter into that debate this morning. But there's two big ways you can look at what Paul's saying here. There's the people who would swing towards the theological view of Calvinism, which means God chooses people or predestines people. And then there's the other side of that coin, which would be Arminianism, which says we choose God. Now, as you read through the Bible, you can see different examples of this. And just to be completely honest with you, I lean more towards the reform side. And I think the reason I lean towards the reform side is because I think Paul leans that way. Because if you think about Paul's testimony, and maybe if you think about your testimony for a minute, you would probably say that you weren't running hard after God when God found you. That we would have this theological belief that we would say it seems as though God pursues people, the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives, and then as a response, we choose God. So Paul's talking about his testimony going, hey, I wasn't pursuing him. I was just fine killing Christians and trying to shut down the church. And then one day Jesus shows up, knocks me off my horse, blinds me, and asks me some really hard questions. Paul goes, I was chosen. I was predestined. I wasn't chasing after God. God was chasing after me so that I could know the depth of his grace, his love, and his mercy. And my guess would be is if we went around the room and you shared your testimony, that'd be your story. You'd say in your life you were going about business, doing your thing, and there was this moment or this situation or a conversation or you opened up the Bible and it became so clear to you that you said, I see my sin and I need a Savior and his name is Jesus. What I think we can take away from what Paul is saying as we put these two things together is this, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God can pick you, pursue you, love you, save you, and bless you. It means if you take what Paul is saying, it means that God has chosen us so that we could be set apart. That he's chosen us so that he could do his work in us so that we could be like him in the world. Because he's working in our hearts and in our lives. That no matter what's happening in your life, you can go, I am blessed. God chose me. It wasn't like middle school kickball team when I was always picked last. God chose me because he wanted me, because he loved me, because I was predestined before the foundations of the world. And then Paul goes, this is what he chose you for. That you are com 
you are so blessed because not only has God chosen you, not only has he called you blameless and holy, but he has adopted you. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Even as he chose us in and before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is really significant. Because if you read through the Old Testament, God is called the Father 14 times in the entire Old Testament. And every time God is called Father in the Old Testament, it's national, it's not personal. It means God is the Father of the nation of Israel. It's about God is the head of that nation, the head of that people. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he uses the phrase, God is Father, over 60 times in the New Testament. He begins to tell people, hey, when you pray, go before God and say, hey, Daddy. Hey, Abba, Father. Jesus goes, you can know God best as a loving, heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you. But because he loves you and cares for you, sometimes he has to tell you no. Sometimes he has to discipline you. Sometimes he has to lead you on journeys you don't necessarily want to go down. He protects you, sometimes even from yourself. That he is the perfect expression of a father. And he says, not the way that he has become your father is he has adopted you. That you now, through the process of adoption, have become a son or a daughter of the king. You're his child. That he loves you the way a good father loves his children, and that you can love him the way that a child loves their father. That no matter what you do, you still have the DNA of the father. That you can leave the home, but you're still a child. You could have a relationship with God where you could know him so intimately that he would be like a father and you would be like his child. And what Paul begins to allude at the fact that this is not just like any adoption, but it means that you are the son or the daughter of the Most High King. That your heavenly Father is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that when you begin to look at your Father for things like provision and for protection, for guidance, that it comes from the God who has created all things, the God that rules and reigns over heaven and earth, that you are His child. And nobody would go to the King for a glass of water in the middle of the night unless they were His child. Nobody in the kingdom would go knock on the king's door and be like, yo, king, you up? I'm thirsty, and I know you got some good water in there. But the king's sons and daughters would have no fear running to the king's bedside at the middle of the night and saying, hey, daddy, I need a glass of water. I'm a little afraid. We just... Spend a little time together. 
Could you provide for my need? Could you help me out? And then Paul begins to reveal to us how that adoption took place. He begins to tell us about how all of this comes together for us. And he reveals to us that we are blessed through redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now the word redemption means to save or buy back in exchange for some sort of payment. To exchange or buy back for some sort of exchange of payment. The word redemption actually goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. And it's used, the way that it's used in Exodus all throughout the Bible, and it's beautiful and it's significant. What we discover in the Old Testament is the Pharaoh of Egypt takes God's people captive, enslaves them, mistreats them, abuses them, and makes life just straight up difficult for them. And the scriptures say that God hears the cries of his people, and he chooses Moses. And he tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. What we see is Pharaoh says, no. See, sometimes we're like Pharaoh and we think we get to argue with God. But God sends Moses back and says, you tell Pharaoh that every time he says no, there'll be a judgment. There'll be a consequence for him denying me. And we see that time and time again, Moses goes and says, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no, and there's a plague. There's a consequence. And God is actually giving Pharaoh grace. He's giving him opportunities. And he continues to say, no. And so finally, it comes to the last time. God tells Moses, you tell Pharaoh that the worst of them is coming unless he lets my people go. And what's coming is the death of the firstborn son. That if my people remain in Egypt, every firstborn son will die in the night unless, unless my people put their trust in me and they sacrifice a lamb. And if they take the blood from the land and cover it on the doors, then the death or the consequence or the wrath will just pass over. And for the wrath of God to pass, there had to be a sacrifice. Payment had to be made. So the nation of Israel made sacrifices. It cost the lamb its life. And that night when the angel of death visited, it passed over the houses of the people who put their trust in the blood of the Lamb. And see, from there, that's where we get this theme of redemption, that God would purchase us, that he would buy us back, that he would take us out of slavery to sin, that he would take us out of exile, that he would purchase us back by Jesus being our sacrificial lamb. 
That we see in Exodus that the nation of Israel is delivered, that God made a way for them, that he had a price that had to be paid, the sacrifice of the land, that he parts the waters for them, that he provides for them. And so when we talk about redemption, that's what God continues to do for us. That's why we chose that name for our church, as we wanted to see a church that would be active in the community and see God redeeming this land, redeeming the people, that he would buy back what was once his. And the price that would be paid is the death of Jesus. And that he would pay the price for us to buy us back. That he would break the chains of slavery to sin so that we could be set free. That's why Paul says we have been set free for freedom's sake. That God set us free so that we could have freedom in Christ. And he says, hey, you've been redeemed. That you once were far, that you were once exiled, but you've been purchased, you've been brought back, you've been free, that you once had a wicked master that was sinned, but now you have a good master who is your heavenly Father. He says, not only are we redeemed, but we are forgiven. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He says, I want you to see that you've been redeemed, you've been purchased, you've been brought back, but you've also been forgiven. And the reason that forgiveness is so big is because every single one of us need to be forgiven. You just think about your own life. What do you regret? What are things that you wish you had never done? If you could get like a mulligan card and go back and do it over again, what are those moments or those instances that you would go back and do those over? Maybe another way to think about it is like this. If your life was made into a biography movie, and they were going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing about, but the truth about you, and we were going to play that movie up on this screen, how many people would you invite to come watch that movie with you? None. If I knew it was my turn, I wouldn't let you in the door. Because we all have hurts, habits, regrets, mistakes. Well, Paul says trespass, he says, listen, there's times that that God has told us to do things and we decided not to do, do those things. That God drew a line in the sand and we stepped over the line. That God's told us to do stuff we haven't done. He's told us not to do stuff that we have done. And that every single one of us needs to be forgiven. And the reality is, is there's all kinds of things we can do when we sin. We can hide our sin try to act like it never happened. We can try to diminish it. Oh, that's not, that's not, that one's not such a big one. You know, so-and-so does bigger sins than that sin. We can try to manipulate God. Hey, God, I'll, I'll work my way out of that sin. I'll do two good things for that one bad thing. We can try to excuse it. We can even try to punish ourselves. God, I'll pay a little penance for my sin. I'll suffer a little bit to earn your forgiveness. Paul says there's a better way. When you sin, you can just go to Jesus and be forgiven. 
That you can go before Jesus and just ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. And that's the heart of Jesus. One of the last things he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them. See, sometimes we don't truly take this to heart. Because inside of us, there's two mentalities that I think that we learn at a very early age in our life. And the first one is a worker's mentality. Your parents, somewhere along the line, because they care for you and they wanted you to be able to one day afford your own place to live and put meals on the table, as they taught you, you get what you earn. You do good in school so you can learn, so that you can get a job, and you work hard at your job so you can get a paycheck. And then we also have a debtor's mentality that we know that we earn what we make and we know we have to pay the debts that we have. So if I owe you money, I owe you and I have to pay you. And the problem is we come to Jesus and Jesus says, listen, I did the work for you. I forgive you. And we go, no, no, I have to earn your forgiveness because I have a worker's mentality. So I'll try to earn it from you, the forgiveness that I should have. And Jesus says, no, it's grace. It's not about you. It's not about you earning it. It's not about you achieving it. It's free. So we go, that now I have a debt. So Jesus, now I have to pay you back. He says, no, it's grace. It's free. But it costs Jesus his life. Paul says, you have been blessed because you've been forgiven. And, and this is, listen to what he says. Listen to how he's forgiven you. He's lavished it. That he just keeps forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And when you think God has exhausted his forgiveness, he has an ocean more of forgiveness to give you. That maybe most simply put what Paul's saying is God has forgiven everything you have done and he's forgiven everything that you will do, and you don't fully understand it, but in Christ he has done it. It is a blessing. And all you have to do is receive him. All you have to do is believe in him. And you receive the forgiveness. And then Paul begins to wrap this up with the blessings, and he says, by the way, one of the great blessings you have on your life in Christ is that you have been sealed. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, back in that time, if you had something important that belonged to you, you would put your seal upon it. In fact, even if you were going to send somebody a message, you would put your seal on that message because once the seal was broken, you would know that someone else had obtained the information. Paul uses that language and he goes, I want you to know that you've been sealed. That you've been chosen, redeemed, forgiven, made homely and blameless. You've been adopted, but you've been sealed. 
That God has put his mark on you, that you belong to him, that you are his. And that often people will ask the question, can somebody who is saved become unsaved? And I think that's the wrong question. I think the better question is, can Jesus lose a believer? Is it possible for Jesus to lose something that belongs to him? And I would suggest to you the answer is no. That once you're sealed, you're his. And he says the Holy Spirit is given to us. It is a seal that as the Holy Spirit begins to work in us and transform us, as the Holy Spirit resides in our heart and causes us to become a new creation, one of the things it does is it marks us not only as a son and a daughter of the King, but it marks us as a citizen of heaven. And it guarantees us that one day we will stand before God and we will have an inheritance because our heavenly Father, who is our King, owns all of heaven. So one day you'll stand before Him and go, hey, I get in. Not because of anything I've done and not because of who I am, but He's my dad and He's the King and He runs the joint and I've been sealed by Him, so let me in. That we have been sealed by Him that we are marked as his people who belong to him. And we receive an inheritance because of who he is, because of what he's done. So in closing, two quick questions. The first question is, why would God do all this? Why would God do all this? Paul says it three times in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, because it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1, 12, because it's to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 14, to the praise of his glory. That the reason that God has done all this is because it delights him. That God has revealed his glory to us most clearly in his grace that we see the glory of God the clearest and the fact that he would pursue us even though we don't deserve it, that he would choose us even though we rebel against us, that he would take our sinful nature and give us the beautiful, holy, righteous nature of his son. And then he would adopt us in his children, that he would seal us and give us an inheritance because in that, we begin to see his glory. In that, we begin to see who he really is. In his grace, we begin to understand his character and his nature and what he's like. But God would do all that because of who he is, not because of who we are. That he would do all that because it's about his glory and because we don't have a glory of our own that he would do all that so that we can know him, that God would give his life for us and he would give his life to us. Which leads us to the last question. How do we respond? And I think maybe the simplest way to talk about this or to clarify this is by an illustration. I once heard somebody say that all theology, all beliefs, 
really break down into two categories. There's cat theology and there's dog theology. And if you thought for a minute about a cat and a dog who lived in the same house with the same owner, and the master of the cat and the dog would treat them incredibly well. He would keep them warm. They had beds to lie in. He would feed them. He would take care of their health, make sure they were provided for. That the cat at the end of the day would say, look at my master. He cares for me. He feeds me. He pets me provides a place for me to live. And the cat would say to himself, I must be amazing. Look at all my master does for me. But the dog would say, look at my master. Look at the way he cares for me. The way that he feeds me and treats me. Look at the walks that he takes me on. Look at the bed that he's provided for me. The vet that he takes me to. I must have a pretty amazing master. What Paul reveals to us is the way that we respond is by trusting God, by putting our faith in him, and by blessing the God who has blessed us. That we don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm pretty awesome, I'm blessed. Wake up in the morning and go, look at the greatness of God. Look who he is, and I am blessed. And that because our blessing is never tied to our circumstance, our situation, how we feel, the bank account, how the job's going, but because our blessing is tied to the character and to the nature and to the goodness and to the glory of God, it is secure. It means that every day we can wake up with thanksgiving and we can wake up with praise and we can wake up with an attitude to say, today I will bless the God who has blessed me because I I'm incredibly blessed in Christ. So Paul begins to say, you want to know who you really are? Greater than the street you live on, the town you came from, the job you do, one of the things that should feed the source, one of the things that should inform your identity is that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So bless God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.